1: Another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Heidi. Heidi, for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are, can you
0: please introduce yourself? Okay, thanks for having me on the show, Robbie. Um, so I'm Heidi Metz. I'm a um, associate uh, professor in medical ethics at Ghent University in Belgium, um, and most of my research uh, focuses on the ethics of reproductive medicine, embryonic stem cell research, genetics in the context of reproduction, mainly. Um currently I'm working on a project on disruptive innovation in healthcare and how that changes some basic principles in, in medical ethics. And so I've taken a couple of courses on bioethics and medical
1: ethics. When we talk about medical ethics, for instance, what particular problems do you see that are being faced right now?
0: Um, well, for example, um, for example, the concept of informed consent, it's a very deeply rooted, you know, well-accepted principle that if you want to participate in a, in a clinical trial, for example, that you have to have, give your informed consent, or if you have a medical procedure performed on you, that you have to give your informed consent. Um, but now you have a whole bunch of new, what we call disruptive technologies in healthcare, um, where you have, for example, for example, there's this app that you can put on your phone and it goes to all your pictures, uh, your baby pictures, for example, and it can spot whether your baby has an, an eye cancer. Um, if you spot it very early on, then you can, so it's just a reflection of the light that makes a difference. So it'll, it'll be more whitish or grey. So, and it's not a perfect test of course, this app, but it'll take out, it'll say, you know, these pictures, there is a concern that there might be uh, a cancer forming in the, in the eye. Um, now, if you, if you see that all, all of these, like, for example, I have three children, if it would always pick out the left eye of the same child, then I might be worried and then I might think, oh, okay, there might actually be something there. So then you can, can visit your, your ophthalmologist and then have it researched, and then they will give you a, a definite type of, um, diagnosis. But what happens then is that, um, so you have this app, and then the app also asks you to improve the algorithm that you, you, know, that you let them know if, if they found something in one particular child, whether it was indeed an eye cancer or not, so that the algorithm can improve, which is a good thing. Uh, but what happens now is, as I'm using this app, I am first doing a medical screening, which normally a physician would do, and for which, you know, I would have to consent, but that I'm doing myself, so okay, that's fine. I'm participating in a research project because I'm uploading data that researchers are going to use to improve the algorithm. Usually I would have a very elaborate informed consent form for that to say, you know, what, what are what will we be doing with your with your with these pictures and with your personal information? Now I just clicked, you know. Agree to the terms and conditions, which is very different than informed consent, because we all click, you know, terms and conditions that we, we never ever read them right. Um, so that makes us kind of wonder what is what is happening here, were we being too strict with requiring this informed consent for each and every research project. Or are we not being strict enough with these kinds of medical apps so that's just one example of how a very, you know, clear principle in medical ethics might become a bit. Um, not really problematic, but, but what makes us wonder, you know, were we doing this correct or should we should we do other things to um, to reach the same goal as what we're reaching with informed consent? Normally, normally but we would say that we do this to make sure that people are not being exploited or that they are not, um, you know, that, that they don't have any medical procedures performed in them without, their, you know, without them knowing what it's about and without them agreeing to it. Um, so, but then perhaps we should not allow a medical app to just use, if we do terms and conditions, for example, perhaps yeah. we should have more oversight.
1: It's, it's a tricky kind of understanding only because with people involving technology more into their lives. We look at like the personal experience through our laptop or through social media devices, but from the people I've talked to with technology, with AI, and just different types of algorithms and apps, and even goes deeper into that, which is like sci-fi-ish kind of about implementing technology into your body. We're looking at ways to fix problems that we might have been experiencing for a very long time after talking with so many people about environmental pollutants, such as phthalates and plastics and other types of things you're seeing a large number of people start being more concerned about their fertility, uh, being more concerned about their reproductive, not only the rights aspect behind it, but also just the issue of, are they going to be able to have kids? You're having a lot of kids like younger than me, say 15, 12 years old that are being put on antidepressants at such a young age. I mean, there was a study by John Hopkins about the number of kids who are suffering shortcomings when it comes to an aspect of being aroused or being fertile in some aspects. And It's a large area of concern because I think even people who say they don't want to have kids, they still like the option that they can have kids. But immediately when you take away that option, you say, oh, you can never have kids. There starts to be a dwelling effect on one's life where you start wondering, yeah, there's other methods, adoption, and there's other methods of this sort, but it. it, you start having an internal crisis, which causes people to want to take vast medical kind of enhancements or whatever they possibly can do to reverse that effect so they can actually be able to have kids, which this enters in an area of what's ethical and what's not ethical. And it really lands into some territory where if you're talking about informed consent on an app, for instance, now that app. People can say, okay, well, you're using the app, so you kind of have to understand they're probably taking your data. Yeah, but this is something that's private. And sadly, we're seeing technology come in. I mean, maybe not even sadly, maybe we're looking, I'm looking at it at the wrong light, which is medical humanities. We're heading into a world right now where your digital health records can be online. There becomes ethical issues whether someone can take your medical or whatever records and be able to use it. But when I go to the doctor, which I'm not going to lie, it's like once every six years. I know I'm bad at it, but it's true. And all my stuff is through an app. I get my test results through an app. I get all this through an app. And the only thing that stops it is a username and password. So, yeah, my doctor has access to it, but then who else has access to it? It can be used for blackmailing purposes. That could be an option. Could it be used for companies that are just not even worried about you as an individual, but just want to get a general consensus on a lot of problems that people are experiencing in the world and then make a product based on the number of problems people are experiencing? I mean, it becomes an open door type policy and something that used to be a closed or a closed private type situation.
0: Yeah. No, I think you're right that that's a very legitimate concern there. Um, so I'll I'll first go to the, the last point you you last uh, thing you pointed out that that our medical data isn't you know isn't very secure anymore. And I think that's more a problem in, in the US probably than in Europe. In, in Europe we had the uh, General Data Protection um, Regulation that came out, the GDPR, which which makes it more um, protected. In the US you have HIPAA, which um, normally you know. <laughs> Limits the 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 number of people that physicians can share your medical data with, but that does not apply to to health apps that you just have on your on your cell phone, for example. They are outside of that regulation, so that does mean that indeed, if you have all kinds of medical information, for example, also genetic information, if you um, if you have an online genetic test, you know, just because you think it might be funny to know what your ancestry uh, looks like. Um, then this goes into a database that can then uh, be solved, and and which is worth a lot of money. There was one uh, big, uh, a lot of fuss about. I think it was Blackstone, an investment uh, company, that bought one of these DNA banks for lots and lots of money. Um, and then of course people start getting worried. Like, what are they doing with these with these data? Because it's because they can be solved, and generally a lot of money, of course, that that they're worth so much. Um, these companies might say well you don't have to worry because we're only using them in an aggregated way for example or only in an anonymized way but that's not really well first of all anonym, anonymity and genetics doesn't really go together very well if you have someone's dna you can quite easily find find someone um, but also even if you can't be identified as an individual which sometimes is perfectly possible and eh, which might have many implications for insurance or um, but even if you can be um, identified as an individual also on a group level you can actually have harms resulting from that so if i for example see see that all um, um people with uh, a background in let's say an, an eastern european background uh between 18 and, and 25 uh, have an increased strength, risk of, of depression i'm just i'm just saying something it's probably not very likely that this would be the case but then if i am a Applying for a job, and I am, you know, I have Eastern European ancestry, and I'm between uh, 18 and 25 years old. Then my employer might think, "Oh, this is a high-risk category." Uh, we know this from from research. Um, or, for example, in autism research, there was one that was halted um, recently in the UK, where people did consent to have their their genetic code researched. Um, so all people that that were, you know, that had autism. Um, and those in the study didn't really mind that this genetic code was being you know, deciphered to find out if there were genetic clues to who might develop autism. But other people with autism did object. They say, well, we don't really want you to be looking into our DNA to find out um, what, um, which mutations causes. cause this. Because you know, once we know these mutations, and once someone else has my genetic code, then they can see in my DNA that I have autism, and I might be discriminated against based on that. So I don't want you to do the research. Um, so I think it is indeed a, an issue that needs more regulation, uh, probably to make sure that these, uh, these data are more. Well, you have two ways of regulating it, um, and it, there are two ways of seeing it. So either you say my medical data is my, uh, my possession, I own it, um, which is difficult to arrange to legally, in fact, but it is how we, I think, intuitively think about it or you could say all this medical information all this information we have on our population is like a common good it's our uh, common heritage or common uh, interest to have all this this information to develop uh, drugs and and, uh, and cures um and so we should all share this in solidarity and and altruistically with with society they both have benefits and, and drawbacks so if everybody you know, shields their own information, says, this is mine, and nobody can use it, no, no, no research institutions, no pharmaceutical companies, then, of course, it's more difficult to, to develop drugs, it's, because it it is useful data for for drug development and for therapy development. Um, So that's not ideal. But on the other hand, if you say, oh, it's all for the common good, then, of course, you might, you know, come in this situation where you're being discriminated against because of your, um, uh, you know, your, yeah, data that, that people have on you so i guess the the middle way is well there have been several proposals so one is for example that you have some kind of layered consent well not layered consent but different types of consent so that i could say for example um either i'm fine with my data being shared and you can do it whatever you like or i can say um university uh, research can use my data that's fine but if a pharmaceutical company wants to use it then i want to know the exact research project and i want to get all the information on an app for example and only when i have all this information i will either consent or not consent to them using my data um so but all of this has to be um yeah has to be developed and and, and thought through the, um, there is um one idea for example of using solid box technology so that's the uh, Technology also presented by um, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, I think, uh, the inventor of the World Wide Web. So he's not very happy with how, for example, Facebook is using our data. So we put things on Facebook and then it becomes Facebook's property and they can basically uh, share this information. Whereas he would say, well, it would be better if all this information is not located at you know on Facebook's server, but it keeps that it stays with us. And that we can actually say, you know, you have access to this, or you, you have access to this, but not you or not you. So it becomes kind of like a data fault that we can own and, and manage ourselves, but that other people can get access to. Um, so that might be one way of doing it. And that, that, you know, aligns most with this ownership model, and where you would have everything, you know, you, you would have a say. Uh, a drawback might be there that, you will probably have skewed data. So if I if I want to develop um, a therapy, then I would want my, my population that I use to develop that therapy to be representative of my entire population. Now, if we only rely on those that will give consent, those will probably be people that have smartphones, that know how it works um, so that they can you know, use the app. So it won't be my 90-year-old grandmother that's going to share her data that way. Um, or it might not be people that that are not um, that are less wealthy, for example, that might not have um, you know that might not have time to spend on, on silly apps. Or so, it, it's yeah both both models, let's say, have have inconveniences, drawbacks, and and I think what what would be important is, and that comes back to your first point, that if. You know, if I would be certain that I would not be discriminated against when I share my data, then I would probably be very willing to share my data. And we know also from research that most people are quite willing, actually, to share their health data for the common good, or you know, to make the world better. But at the same time, people don't want to be abused. And, and also, especially if pharmaceutical companies keep selling their drugs at a very high price, and then they tell people, oh, but you altruistically have to share your data, because, you know, it, it'll save humanity. And that's, that people don't like that, right? Either, either everybody acts altruistically or nobody, but if the pharmaceutical company is gonna make a lot of money out of my information, then I want a piece of the cake, so to speak. Um, so I think if we have more safeguards and more, um, yeah, assurances that we are, that we are, yeah. Well, For example, that insurance companies couldn't use it, then that might help people share the data.
1: Well, you're basically asking is like, do you want a full piece of pizza or do you just want one bite? Like, is your eyes bigger than your mouth is or your eyes bigger than your stomach is? And the real question here is, is that if we open up the door to more medical devices, do you think people are ready for this implementation of this research? Because in my opinion, when I say like, is your eyes bigger than your stomach is, is because we have the technology or we're advancing farther towards technology that has these amazing capabilities for medical humanities, for instance. But you have people that aren't necessarily at that level yet. Now I'm not talking about the consumer. I'm talking about the people that are pushing these products like are we saying that you they have your best interest at heart and that's kind of a big question when you get into the world of money you get into the world of advertising you get into the world of just how corporate everything becomes i mean what stops like immediately we're talking about like people being judged on their medical concerns what happens if a kid could get into college because on an app he registered that he has borderline personality disorder and the school decides i don't want someone like this that could be this hair trigger and it skews their An invitation to college or maybe someone who suffered a seizure and on our medical record when they were 12 years old and now is 36 trying to get their license. And they're like, oh, no, sorry, our car insurance isn't going to cover you because you suffered a seizure when you were 12 years old, even though it was 24 years ago, it doesn't matter. Um, That's still uh, an issue. So you can either pay more or maybe we can give you your license. I mean. These are things that sound like oh that sounds insane it's like not really, though, because you got to look at where everything starts to head, and this is kind of the whole point of watching about ethics of these types of things so i'm understanding a lot of what you're saying and actually these are just giving me so many different thoughts and ideas about issues that we can be experiencing i'm trying to look at the positives which. Positives, for instance, diabetes. I know a woman that goes to my work has a diabetes thing on the back of her arm. She's able to put it up to her phone, scans her, lets her know what her blood sugar is. It's way better than pricking yourself doing that. Amazing technology. But then there's also issues of if it's able to track and show your peaks and highs of when your blood sugar's up the most and when your blood sugar is down the most, then it's storing that information. Okay. Where would that information be valuable? Is it valuable to the company on a basis of making their product better? Maybe. But is it also being saved somewhere where someone can log into that and see it there? This became issues when I started talking to someone who exposed, they're called the Google whistleblower, exposing unethical things about the Google company. Well, There's a lot of issues that were going on with data that were being used and sold and and different varying things where you start realizing, I was like, how far is technology going in the medical field? They go, yeah, well, they can change dosages on a computer, a hacker can, and you can't really stop it. And it's like, so we're not there yet. And that's kind of like the big thing right here is like, if we're talking about artificial insemination, if we're talking about freezing eggs, if we're talking about all these things, we have to understand that there is a, this is new technology. This is something that might've been around for a couple of years, 10, 15, whatever you want to say, but people, they, they, not everyone is so involved in this to know a lot about it. There is a huge mismanagement of education when it comes to your digital footprint. And now your digital footprint is increasing more and more as much as you might say i don't really use social media it's not just social media it's your my chart app on your phone that connects to your doctor's office the appointments you set up it's the prescription refills you do through an app now it's your pharmacy keeping a track of the number of times you refilled it's a whole list of things where you start realizing is you might think that you're off the grid you're not really off the grid there's a blood test that they did to you seven, eight years ago. And here's the thing is when I say personal user experience, it's not just people using it for the worst possible ways. It's people when they're in pain, search for anything to get them out of pain. And sadly, at that point, you will hit accept terms and conditions on something very severe without reading them. And then now you are at the hindrance by law of that company depending on whatever you just signed up for. There is no legal loophole to get out of that. And that's where I start having a concern because for someone, let's say you're on your deathbed, you're going to accept anything. And they'll make you sign anything because you want to get better. And the way that I don't like about the United States is that we are one of two countries in the world that advertise pharmaceutical drugs to people. You know how many people see a, an advertisement for a depression pill? You see a lady spinning in a field of wheat and you're like, I want to be like that lady. I want to be happy. I want to I want to be just like her. My life is miserable. I want to be happy like that lady. Then you hear the list of side effects that go like five seconds long, really, really fast, like bloody diarrhea, death. It's like, wait a minute, go back, go back. It's like, there isn't any of that. And that becomes an issue because people get distracted by what could be rather than what actually might be a bigger consequence or what is. Now, nobody wants to feel pain. And sadly, we're in a world that's hurting. And a lot of people feel like they can take a pharmaceutical or they can take this type of thing, and they don't really care about the list of side effects. Now, when I was offered antidepressants, I looked, I go, what's the side effects? They're like weight gain, hair falling out, uh, maybe more depression. I'm like, hang on a second. So there's more depression for taking an antidepressant. They're like, yeah, I mean, that's a it's a rare chance. But there's that thing where it's like, it's a rare chance. It's like on the basis of what, how many people take this pill? What are the, what is the company telling you? And you start getting into these really, when you follow up with 10 questions to your doctor, or you follow up 10 questions about the company or about the, the, the pill you're taking, you'll see, they'll start tapering off around six or seven, because there's a lot of questions. They don't really expecting you to ask so many questions. I mean, informed consent, for instance, or just informed in general that's a big thing that a lot of people need to pay attention to when they are accepting something that they are going to be ingesting or something that could affect the life of a child for instance or something that they're worried about having i mean having like if i'm getting a blood test or something like that how do, do am i asking questions about what tests they're running no just i'm supposed to come in here at 4:30 and get a needle in my arm they take six vials of blood out and that's it Do I know where it goes? Do I know any of this type of stuff? No. And it's like that might not be a huge issue, but you have to really worry about the fact of where else does this go into and when you open up the door for one thing, nobody ever stops at that open up door. They always go through and they always go into your house. Next thing you know, they're looking through your cabinets, asking you what you got for lunch or dinner. And it's like, you got to pay attention to this type of stuff. And people say, well, that's being like a hypochondriac. It's like, not really. It's just making sure that you're checking everything and you're making sure that this is on the right track rather than the wrong one. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess in a sense, sometimes the technology can also Help you do this. Like there's a many uh, what we call citizen scientists or, or a patient scientist, where where people start sharing their experiences with a certain drug in a close community. So there might not even be a physician in that in that community. Um, but and for rare diseases, this can be interesting, where you could all just log your side effects so that they can go back to the pharmaceutical company. Because sometimes, so, you know, sometimes it's a it's a bit of a pity that some drugs are being released into the market and and it's not really followed up on very well of, of what the side effects may be, especially their minor side effects, and nobody will will uh, take it upon themselves to uh, to go and, uh, and report them back. Um, so I think it's not necessarily uh, always tied to the new technology in the sense that we had this before as well. In in regular classic medicine, you could also have uh, you know your doctor not really explaining everything to you. But it does magnify the risks oftentimes because it's on, on larger scales. Um, so that should make us more conscious. At the same time, they might also be tools to actually make it better. So, but to do that, we would have to yeah, make sure that that it's not in the hands of companies that are mainly aimed at making a profit. And that's what we do see right now, and that the the, the big players right now in digital health are not companies or, or not um, organizations interested in health, they're uh, Amazon, Google, um, you know, the, the, the CRISPR. Big five tech players. CRISPR. Um, excuse me? CRISPR. CRISPR. I don't know if they're already investing in that. <laughs> um,
1: well, I mean, CRISPR but, um, was one of those technologies where there there was a, was it CRISPR or was it Theranos? Elizabeth Theranos? Ah, uh, Theranos. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, yeah 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 with the the single blood uh blood drop of blood that could give you all your test results and yeah yeah so these are you know it's it's in a sense it's interesting that you have these new players in the medical field but it's also a bit tricky because you don't really know um you know what they're aiming at if you have your 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 watch with your you know your iWatch with all your your health apps you know it might be nice for you it might be entertaining to know you know that you're your heart rate goes up or down or whatever. Um, but you should also wonder, you know, why do these have these data? And, and there's there are these stories where because they can also interconnect it sometimes with what you're posting on Facebook, for example. Um, and there there are these stories going around of people, for example, just because they're Googling um, you know, about pregnancy or whatever, that all of a sudden they, they get ads about pregnancy. So if you can couple these this information to um uh your your medical records, then this might become really um, but just very valuable for advertisers but also very scary for yourself because other people know things about you almost before you know them yourself. Um, and I know there was a, a warning uh, last week uh, for the U.S. in the in the wake of the the, the probable Roe v Wade uh, reversal um, that for women using um, menstruation apps so to track your, your uh, menstruation cycle That's that this is so becoming dangerous to do Because if you, you know, if you have this tracking device and, and, you know, the data are being stored somewhere in a central server, then somebody like, if I'm under suspicion for having had an abortion, someone might actually, you know, go look at the data in that app and and then see, oh, that's strange. You, You know, there's no menstruation here for a couple of months. What happened, Heidi? What did you do? You know, maybe I miscarried. Maybe I, but all of a sudden I become a suspect. Just because I was logging, you know, when I'm menstruating, which you, you wouldn't expect to be incriminating data or some or data that somebody that might be useful to someone So it I think there are a lot of instances where, I mean, we, we shouldn't be um, worried all the time about what will people, you know, evil people do with my data. But there is some some sense of, you know, we, we have to be careful with how we share these data. Um, and we would hope that there are some securities built in that make sure that these data do stay um, private for uh, you know for, for a, a reasonable uh, <laughs> to a reasonable degree that we could at least you know be sure that they're not being used against us.
1: I never understood the menstruation or like the uh, the period apps or the period trackers that like there's these apps out there. I was like, that's that, that just seems so weird to me. Just feel like, can't you write it down like or something like that or remember it? I don't know, but I get it why people use them. But I knew so many people that were like after that act had, was, was going on, everyone was like, delete your period tracker app. I was like, is that a real thing? Like, I thought that was like a joke I saw like on an <laughs> SNL skit or something like that. Um, no, I but- think
0: that's people that don't want to use contraception, but that just want the app to tell you you're fertile right now you're not fertile, so you know whether or not you can have sexual intercourse at that point without being pregnant so i guess that's why people want to use it which well it's fine or if you have a medical condition and you want to make sure you know that i don't know that your reproductive health is not impacted um but it it is becoming tricky even you know something seemingly um, innocent like that do you think
1: people want to be educated on something like this do you think people actually want to know that their data and all that stuff is being sold because i mean the social dilemma documentary came out about google and all this stuff tracking your data then everyone just got used to it now they literally ask you on the website if you want to accept or deny cookies um, they're openly telling you that they are taking your data information and people don't care they still want to use the app which i think more knowledge of the dangers behind it or just making people aware so at least there's no risk to the idea that they were unaware at least they knew what they were getting into but i think people adapt i mean that's my biggest fear with genetical engineering engineering i see the upsides of it so much when it's like you have a baby that might have autism and you can correct that in the womb or something like that where this baby doesn't have to like you know can like as normal as you want to say i'm just saying in an aspect of like they're not going to have autism in their life doesn't mean they can't have a happy life it just means that they won't have autism or something or uh, there's a disease out there it's a suicide disease basically what it is is like you just randomly pass out or something like that and it's like that's a dangerous that's a dangerous one, and it's like if you can fix that before this person ever experiences that, then yes. But what stops companies like CRISPR or other things that just start going? We can make your baby have blue eyes. We can, and then you start engineering, and it's like I I think when people have too much power, they start to abuse it. Not just you know companies, but people start to do that. I mean, I uh had. When I was telling you before about having Peter on here who talked about the issues with artificial insemination and all these kids that are are people that are having brothers and sisters that don't know that they're brothers and sisters, they have to go track back their history and stuff. That's a dangerous thing, but I also have a friend who had kids by having his wife freeze her eggs, and it's like there's a crucial aspect to the people that need it, but there's also people out there where they've learned To donate sperm, you can get paid for doing that depending on how good your genetics are. And people just do that, and they don't want to be responsible for the kid. And that starts to become another aspect where we go, this is having too much power. You can't incentivize people to do this type of stuff. And I get it. You might need some. But at this point – People can't make that decision correctly, and companies shouldn't be in charge of making that decision for them. There needs to be a, a healthy understanding about the pros and cons. There needs to be better restrictions. There needs to be guidelines that have need to be updated in a sense because they were made when the company might have been introduced or when this first technology was introduced but there really hasn't been like let's go look back at like the artificial insemination record let's go look at there's none of that it's just moving on to the next thing and maybe that's because The general public probably doesn't turn to artificial insemination or things of this sort, but we're entering a world where there is more gay people than ever. There's more of this. So this should be an area of concern for a lot of people when it comes to artificial insemination. You know, I don't care if you're gay. I don't care, whatever. But that should spark up interest amongst the general public now that this is becoming more normal.
0: Well, I must say, there is a lot of follow-up in, uh, in the IVF uh, uh, sector. So there is um, there are registries of children that have been conceived IVF that are being compared to a natural um, a reproduction, well, children are a result of natural reproduction. Um, so that's, I think we're, we're not doing bad with that, but I think you are right in saying, well, I think. I think people should be educated about all these all these new technologies and these new ways your data is being used. These new technologies that are being used to reproduce. Um, I also think that you are right in saying you know some people will just not care and still share their data. And there you have a problem which we call the big data divide, where you don't really oftentimes have a choice. If I say I'm not going to share any more data with Google anymore, I'm just never ever going to Google something. Well, that's you know my life is going to be harder (laughs) if I can't Google anything. You can use another uh, another. um, searching machine, of course, but it's your, you know, you are there, it's so permeated that it's very, you in know, into our lives, it's very difficult to, to avoid that. But I think that's why you need, you know, extra levels. You want to inform people and that's at that's at a basic level, but then you also just want to build in safeguards for all those people who, um, who either are not informed who, or who are informed, but who feel that they don't have another option, but sharing their data, for example, or taking recourse to a certain uh, therapy or, or um, uh, intervention. Um, so that you can also make sure that they are also being safeguarded. So you could, for example, say, you know, you should have um, obligatory follow-up on the children you see through a certain, certain method or certain procedure. Uh, for example, for egg freezing, it, it hasn't been around for that long. I think it's about 2000 that it started uh, becoming available. Um, So it would be nice to go look at those children and see, you know, are there any extra birth defects? What are are the implications? We have some some follow-up data on that already, but not, you know, not a tremendous amount, of course. And then you have to dare and go back as well and say, you know, if there is a problem, then you should should report it. Um, So far, I don't know if there has been any, I yeah, there has been one that has been revoked. At one point there was a um, cytoplasmic transfer that was done uh, in the US where the FDA at a certain point says, well, said, well you, you should better stop this because we're concerned about the welfare of the children that will be born that way. The ban is still in effect in the in the US in fact, because now there are safer ways of doing something similar, but I don't think the, UA, the US has should their stamp. Um, so I wouldn't say that this does not happen. Um, there is oversight, but it's, yeah, some countries have more oversight than others. And in some, I know in the US, for example, you know, there's a big focus on, on liberty and freedom and, you know, people should be able to do what they want. Uh, whereas perhaps in Europe, we're more like, well, we need some, some sort of, you know, restrictions and oversight and, and we want it to be more regulated. Um, so I guess you have to find the balance that works best for, for your country and your, and your community. Um, but sometimes, like I know, for data sharing, that actually in the US um, a lot of companies say, yeah, we think people should be able to decide individually what they want to do with their data because they know that it's really easy to convince a consumer to share to share all their data basically for free. Um, so sometimes I think this rhetoric of freedom is also being kind of abused to get you know to get what you what you want as a, as a company. Um, so it's yeah, it's tricky. To find to find the right balance I guess but uh, I still believe in education though I think it's good that people are at least informed and then then at least you know they're not as surprised if it turns out that their data has been used here or there um, yeah. where do you stand but I really,
1: on, yeah. well where do you stand on 3d printing like somebody that might have a 3d like printed heart or something of that sort yeah like fixing a, I've seen articles about fixing a ventricle or 3D printing a ventricle and then having it replaced with that, but also a 3D printing heart. I mean, if we get to a point, I don't know if it's been done. I remember reading something about that, like the ideas of it. But also, I've been talking to a lot of people who are involved like with putting technology into your body. So a lot of this does sound like sci-fi, but I mean, nanotechnology, biomechanical uh, technology, I mean, it's getting very, very vast and very, very real where I just can't get out of my head. Like They got to label it with a serial number. So I'm like, what stops them from tracking you, or what stops them from this? And people go, well, why would they want to track you? I go, man, you're the first person with an artificial heart or technology. Pacemakers, for instance, they have a serial code on the pacemakers. That's how they're able to identify the technology. So when you know someone can't be resuscitated with a pacemaker in there, if that doesn't work or none of that works, when they take it out, they just reuse. They can reuse that same technology, where it brings up another issue of concern, where it's like DNA. Is there DNA still on that? I, get it you washed it or you cleared it under a blacklight whatever but these are like real like issues where you start wondering stuff of like i know people always worry about cloning and stuff of that sort i mean i don't necessarily think we're there yet maybe we've cloned a sheep or maybe someone's cloned a sheep mm-hmm. or you know we we have technology that's getting close but i mean right now i think all we have is being able to inject something into like uh something that's pregnant and being able to recreate something like that or being able to develop and that's with small animals or small things of that sort i don't think we're so far as cloning a human yet but
0: well nobody's trying it but i think the technology in principle there would be you know we're cloning pets right uh and and larger mammals as well so i think it's feasible uh, to do it but yeah you could wonder why would you want to do it? but i think yeah cloning is a bit of a you could pull a, an entire episode on that, I think, because it's actually quite interesting why we're why we are so opposed to reproductive cloning, while we're allowing a bunch of other reproductive technologies. Um,
1: so, but yeah,
0: to get back to the to the tracking in the in with the medical devices and the and the three D printing. Um, I think, again, there's a lot of potential there to save human lives because we, you know, it's, if you have to replace, uh, you know, a body part somewhere, it might be, or it would be really nice if we could print that in cells that have your own tissue type and so that your body won't, uh, won't, won't uh, push it out of your body, basically. Um, so that's all Great. Again, I think if you are worried about being tracked, uh, if if somebody would want to do it, well, again, I think you would need two things. Again, consent, you know, we have to inform the patient what you're doing, and then arguably uh, oversight to make sure that this does not happen. Um, The thing that comes closest to that, I think, that I've heard so far is the digital pill. So there are pills oftentimes for, um, for mental illnesses. Where the physician really wants to be sure that the that the patient is taking their drugs as prescribed, and so where um, where uh, yeah a chip is in the pill that you ingest, so that it's it, the data can be transferred to the the drug company to say uh, this this pill has been taken this day on this this time of the day, so that your physician also can track how uh, she's been taking her meds every day, um, but well first of all it would be. Some of these pills are now not being sold anymore without the tracking. So that's problematic because then if you need the drug, then you you are kind of obligated to be tracked and when you're taking this pill or why not. And also what we saw there is that sometimes these companies are actually tracking more than, than the basic minimum of what they would need to be tracking. So if it would really be about compliance about you taking the drug or not, then they would only have to register that. But you, it's, you have to wear this... Um, uh, yeah, something that you wear around your waist to to transfer the signal, kind of, so it can see whether the the pill has, has passed through. Uh, but for example, sometimes it also monitors your heart rate, and then you might say, well, that doesn't that doesn't really matter, and I don't, I don't why my heart rate being uh, measured or, or tracked? But in a sense, it is it it does matter because then they know at what time you go to sleep and at what time you you wake up, at what time you're you know doing sports, at what time. So. It's all this information that might be harmless, but at the same time, you know you might also want to keep that private. so if if already you would allow a digital pill to be to be used, then you might also want to make sure that you have regulations to say, well, then only monitor whether the pill was ingested, So you know that might be interesting. And then, And then also regulate where this information is being stored. Is it only your physician that knows whether you've taken the pill? Or is it a company making those pills? Are they selling this information or not? So that would be, I think, um, uh, worrisome if we we go down, down, down that track. Well, that's tricky.
1: Well, well, I say that's tricky. Can't you get out of a lot of the stuff if you just say that you just give the information and not give the person's name, like anonymous, like the immediately? I remember when my doctor asked me, "Do I vape?" I said yes, and I'm like. When you put that question on the chart, I get it's to better treat me, but what stops that person from not giving my name with that answer, but say, okay, well, we have ages under this range that are vaping more than vaping not. And then who are you giving that data to? Well, that's the drug companies. That's people that are making nicotine products. That's tobacco. I mean, tobacco has influenced a lot of studies and a lot of research things as well too. And it gets into this area that I've been getting super interested in, very scared, which is corporate influence into business. Uh, I mean, not business, corporate influence into just research and anything in general when it comes to like academia for instance there are so many articles i'm looking up at renewable energies and the renewable energies are like sponsored by exxon i'm like that's a gas company like of course you're going to tell me coal power is amazing like i'm not going to get the honest information which i mean it it sucks because even though they can get out by saying, well, we didn't put anybody's name on this. I'm like, yeah, but where did you get your information from? That means that that institution was giving you information that was private in that individual conference, but they just labeled it anonymous. It doesn't matter. You're looking at an institution now that just might have wanted to get some more money for their you know, funding, didn't see the harm in it, but there's a lot of harm that comes with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that brings us back to this aggregated data. So it might be that well, that the, the the two main ways of, of making sure that that you're protected as a as a consumer or as a patient is either aggregating the data and making these big uh, silos, let's say all all people below twenty, and mm-hmm. and you know, and then if you have hundreds of them in there, then you might not be able to track who's who, or anonymizing. But this is becoming really really difficult. There's been many studies where if you only have like four or five pieces of information about one person, then you can quite easily identify it, like half of them. If you just go on social media, for example, and, and look, you know, look for people, um, yeah, you know, dark hair, that age, uh, mother has, has a university degree, and, and they live in this area, for example, then you might just find them quite easily or narrow it down to three people. So this is a a difficulty but one that is also difficult to tackle because if you would say well we can't really we can't really never be sure we can't m- never be safe that they won't be able to track us so we will just never share any data then that's also a pity because then they don't recall the benefits of the data sharing um, so there's a yeah i guess it's a dilemma that you can that you can't completely escape that you always um have and and which is why, again, I think we have to make sure that you also have legal repercussions for those who might abuse the data so that they, you know, there are regulations saying you cannot share the data, for example, with an insurance company in a way that they might identify someone. Um, then you can make sure that if somebody does do it, that you can at least, um, you know, they'll at least be fined or, or, or that you can go to court and say, I've been, you know, my insurance company is, is, uh, is, not, giving, is not giving me coverage because of this information that they illegally obtained, so I should be able to get coverage. So, yeah, I think I,
1: it, yeah. Well, I, I was about to say, have you noticed like the recent stuff with um, organ transplants, like a lot of organ, uh, like for instance, um, actually in my town, um, a person had got a pig heart and he lived off of it for, I think 30 something days and then died. There was some disease that was in the pig heart or something like that that killed him. And I mean, people had this issue with COVID, like did they get were they vaccinated were they not you're donating an organ to somebody is that going to affect a bunch of things there's a lot of stuff I didn't even I couldn't even imagine thinking of that were coming up and it becomes issues how many people have gotten a new organ from another person and it might have had a disease it might have had something that wasn't disclosed because maybe that person didn't know I mean there's a lot of stuff I understand that we test for but these become issues as well too I mean um Even with stem cells, I bet that has to be the weirdest experience to understand stem cells, because for me, six, seven years ago, when I first heard about stem cells, it was like going overseas and getting stem cells, for instance. And then it's became increasingly legal here in the States. There's more education. There's more research on it now. And everyone just gotten used to it. I know a couple of people like I got a stem cell treatment. I'm like. What? Like I remember six, seven years ago, that was the weirdest freaking thing. And now it's like becoming more normal. I'm not against it. I'm just saying that adaptation to the immediate pushback of like stem cells is bad. You got to go to another country or something like that, at least for the States. Mel Gibson talking about he had to go to a whole nother like somewhere in Taiwan or something like that to get stem cells or something like that. And now you're seeing this whole turnaround from it. I don't know what your thoughts are on it.
0: Well, for the stem cell therapies, there's a lot of there's a lot of therapies that don't work at all. (laughs) So it's um, you have well, you have the the therapies that we've been having forever. Like if you have leukemia, you can have a stem cell transplant because you will have to have your own stem cells basically destroyed to get the new ones, you know, to to make sure that that you survive. Um, But you have a lot of companies saying that they have stem cell treatments just because it sounds fancy, but they're not really evidence based. They're not really doing much. So you have to be careful with that. There are a couple of um, stem cell treatments, of course that that do work. Uh, there, I think an eye treatment that exists. Um, but there's there's this um, yeah, there, there was a lot of hype around stem cell research, a lot of hope. and some companies are are cashing in on that without actually giving up proper treatment. So, that is something to be very, very careful about. That if you have a stem cell treatment, that it's through, you know, through a physician that knows what they're, what they're doing, and and, and that they're not just, just telling you something that that just won't work uh, to to get some money out of you. Um,
1: when it comes to reproductive health, for instance, this is like it, it goes in with what we just talked about. Um, How many people are being sold something without the proper information, or maybe it's just a label? Like you mentioned, people say like stem cell treatment is like that's a thing that people say. How many people are actually getting like their you know actual correct information, and they're paying for something when their company's not really keeping up to date with the amount of things that they're saying? We had a doctor um wasn't even that long ago uh, a lady got a certain a sperm donation she wanted to artificial inseminate and the doctor had filled up the jars with his own because they had a low amount of the actual thing so people got the wrong product and eventually got the wrong genetics or things that they wanted in their kid
0: yeah yeah there there is some concern over that it's what we call the, the idea of atoms where you have you have your regular IVF treatment and then perhaps they will say oh but we can also do this to increase your chances we can do that to increase your chances and some of them are evidence-based but some of them are not um, I think one of the one of the big ones that that are concerning um, is uh, what we call yeah PGTA, so pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. So I might have to explain that one. So if you if you so if you go through IVF you make a couple of embryos. Eh? So the you you uh, as a the, the woman um, your ovaries are stimulated so that you have let's say ten. Uh, ov- Excel that that um, ripen <laughs> that, that cycle, and then you get them inseminated, and then you might have let's say eight embryos. Now what you could do is you can sometimes when you put back the embryos, some of them result in a pregnancy and some of them don't. And one of the reasons might be that you have an aneuploidy. So that means that you know that in in the chromosomes there's one that's missing on, or there's one too many. So Already back in the, in the 90s, there was this idea like, oh, but what if we just check it? So we take one cell up of this embryo, or now what they're doing is they culture it a bit further and they can take more cells. And then we check if there is this aneuploidy or not, and we only put back the good ones. Now, already in the 90s, this was, this was used <clears throat> all over the world. And then, after I think nine years, after people were doing this, somebody actually went and checked if your chance of having a child were increased or decreased when you do this, and they were actually decreased because by taking the biopsy, you're actually, you know, decreasing the chance of this embryo implanting because you damaged it. So what happened then is that you have what we call PGT 2.1 or 2.0, um, where you say where people said, "Oh, but we'll we'll make a better genetic test," but in the meantime you know, the, the survival of embryos that are frozen is, is much better. So you don't really need to do all this testing. You can just put back your embryos one by one. And let's say if you have 10 embryos and you would just all put them back one by one, then perhaps four of them will lead to a pregnancy. Now, the idea is if you do this testing, then you can have the four good ones. And you know which ones they are. You can put those ones back first. Um, And then you will get pregnant faster. You won't have a bigger chance of getting pregnant because, you know, you can't make any of the bad embryos better just by by testing them. But that is not happening. Even the time to pregnancy is not improving. So there are fundamental flaws in this technology, which probably have to do with the fact that not all your cells are the same. So you might have some cells that have the aneuploidy and and some cells that don't. but this technology is still being used, you know, still being sold to too many people and some people think that, you know, this is like top notch technology and that's what they need to have to get pregnant, but it's basically lowering your chance in the end of having a child because your chances are still greater if you just transfer one by one, you might have to wait a bit longer but even that isn't sure, you might have to wait longer to get a pregnancy. Um, but your chances of, of having a pregnancy are, are in total lower lower. And this is not true not to people. And the way it is advertised by the companies offering these tests is not correct. So they will they will give you a graph, for example, saying um, your implantation rate, so that's the, the chance of an embryo implanting in the in the uterus, is higher with our technology. And then the the graph that they show is from the first embryo that is transferred and for the first embryo your chances are higher you know there's a bigger chance that this is a good embryo than that this is a bad one once you once you tested them uh, but if you look at all 10 embryos then your chances of conceiving are actually lower when you do the test so they're basically just showing you the wrong graph they're just showing you the graph from your first embryo transfer but not from from the total of the 10 of them but for many people this is not this is not easy to understand. You know, you just see the graph and you see, you know, chances, uh, chances of pregnancy. They seem to be a lot higher when you do this. Um, so there are, in reproductive medicine, there are yeah, several technologies that, that people are using and, and paying for that are they're really not, uh, not helping them at all. On the contrary, in fact, um, sometimes it's, you know, Physicians that are doing it are saying, oh, but for certain patient populations, it might be better. For example, if the woman is already a bit older, because then, you know, every cycle that that doesn't work, that the lady becomes more old. <laughs> and so, you know, we have to be quick, so we should do this. Um, but again, the evidence is, is so poor that you, at this point, you can't really recommend it. I think both professional organizations now, both um, the European and the, the American uh, uh, professional organization do not recommend doing this and yet many many clinics are doing it so um yeah i think there we have a a case of yeah where snake oil salesman it's called salesman. snake oil yes. salesman um yeah, that's what it is <laughs> do you think
1: a lot of people put it it does leak back to the education thing where do you think a lot of people put faith in these instruments to be able to fix us when really it's an unrealistic understanding of what this technology can actually do and it's not only just the education aspect it's also that these companies do promote it like it is this fix all type thing and they might just be trying to get money out of you like it doesn't just really profit from selling data profits profits off of when we talked about earlier people in pain looking for any answer or any fix and It really kind of sucks because a lot of people are put in tight positions and you're being sold the sales pitch when the graph, the numbers might be like zero to one. And you see this giant upshot when you really look at it from a bigger numbered scale and you realize, no, that's actually very, very low and it actually might not be doing anything at all. I mean, how many things you could say out there disease wise or maybe beneficial vitamins or whatever wise it doesn't hurt, but it's not going to be like this cure. And it's like, okay, well, the way that it's being talked about in the commercials isn't selling it that way. It's giving people an unrealistic understanding of what this thing can actually do, which really brings the question, when it comes to original medicines, like people taking care of using old remedies and old types of things of this sort is a lot of that doing with placebo? Or are they really more in somewhat kind of more effective in a sense?
0: I think you have both of course. You have you have drugs that, that are- Work very well uh, but you have lots of placebos there like for example for the common colds, there isn't really a drug that helps you for the common cold. well there's one like a, a route that that does like shorten the time and i think in the us that isn't even sold as a drug but but all of the you know the very common uh, the very common drugs uh, you know you, you would have an entire aisle right of, of common cold drugs none of them work uh, but people like to you know when you're feeling bad you just want to have the impression that you're doing something that you're taking something to help, um, and, and of course, companies are very willing to assist you <laughs> in, the, in getting that, that feeling that you're at least trying something or doing something. Um, I think it's I think it's correct that many people are, are easily to you know easily put on the wrong foot. You know, they you want to believe that that a certain drug or a certain treatment will, will help you, especially when you're uh, becoming uh, exasperated. You know, when when you don't see a way out. Um, and that some people are really cashing in on that. Some perhaps with good intentions, but certainly also people who know very well that they're not really helping the patient. Um, and the more complicated technologies become, the more difficult it is as a patient to know, you know, is this snake oil or is this something real? Uh, and the more easy it is to to make yeah to make wrong wrong impressions or to like everything that's genetics, for example. That it's oftentimes uh, in terms of probabilities and risks. And this, we know this from psychological research, it's very difficult to process for people. So if I, it it kind of goes back to what you said about just showing the one percent. So you would say um, if you have this genetic mutation, then you have twice the risk of developing, um, I don't know, uh, cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that would be a disease that's very common, but let's say a, a not so common disease. So if only 0.2 0.2% of your population has this disease. But then I tell you, you have double the risk. Then you're probably gonna be worried because you have double the risk, but you only still have 0.4% chance of ever getting it. So you shouldn't be worried at all. You it might you might not even have known what the baseline risk was, right? So it might as well have been 0.8, and then you would have only had half the risk, but most of them are 0.4. So it's you know psychologically people um, are not very good at making risk assessments and at making assessments of of what a, a benefit is either. So it's it's uh, similar on both sides, um, and this this is becoming more and more of an issue. I think there is more also in the context of reproductive medicine, but also in, in regular medicine um becoming more the case that you have these risk calculations based yeah either on genetics but also just on your lifestyle On, for example with your apps making recommendations of you know whether or not you will develop uh cardiovascular disease for example um and people sometimes pay too much attention to it so for example if i have a if i have an increased risk of um uh, yeah of heart disease for example uh, but I eat very healthily. I play sports, you know, not too much, but enough to just stay healthy. Um, then probably my my complete risk, you know, taking all of this together is probably lower than somebody who doesn't have this genetic risk, but who's eating very fatty foods all the time and, and not moving around at all. Um, so we should be careful that we yeah, that we look at the entire picture and that we, yeah, that we, again, inform people better of all these different aspects. But it's, it's difficult because it's easy to give people graphs and numbers and, and, um, and make them think that they, are, that they are in trouble and that they need to take drugs to, to make it better. It's also
1: really hard for people to understand genetics, not just from a technical aspect, but to understand that it might not be in the cards for you genetic wise. Like there are people out there that live to be 75 years old, smoking like three packs a day and never get cancer, have the lungs of a newborn infant or something like that. But there's people that never smoke a cigarette at all and they develop lung cancer. And if you tell them it might be a genetical factor, there's just this type of like, So there's, it's my fault. There's nothing, there's nothing that I came across or nothing like that. Like for instance, like I have an intestinal issue, but they're like, it's a, they're saying it's like psychological or some type of issue deep in there. But my fear was it was genetic. Like I had something that was a genetic thing that I, it wasn't my fault, but it's, I can't fix it. Like it just, it just happens to you. And that's like a biggest thing is is it's not really accepting responsibility, but it's accepting that this is kind of the path that you're on. And there's not really a way back from it. Like if you tell someone they're developing or they might get lung cancer or something like that from smoking cigarettes, they can stop smoking cigarettes. It might be a difficult process. It might be easier said than done, but you can still avoid that risk. And it starts to cut down. The more you stop smoking, the longer you stop smoking your uh, whatever cardiovascular risk, whatever you want to say, it all decreases now if you give someone the option of saying hey this is a genetic factor i'm sorry there's nothing there's no hope and people want that hope factor
0: yeah but most of the times it's a combination of two there there are only a couple of diseases that are really strictly genetic like for example huntington's disease okay it's strictly genetic you can't do anything about
1: alzheimer's it.
0: But uh, Alzheimer's also a very strong genetic component. There's not completely, but but a very strong genetic component. But most of the risks you have that are also genetically linked also have an environmental factor. And also, well, also the environmental factor you don't have full control, of course, right? Because you don't know, you know, what what the air quality is in your region or you you can't can't live in a bubble lead and paint
1: that's still in the us we have lead and paint and i've talked to uh, his name is jeremy braun i think his last name is um he studies with pregnant women Um, the environmental pollutants and all these chemicals that are being involved in there's a lot of kids now coming up with behavioral issues mostly behavioral but a lot of cognition issues of kids being born today with cognition issues and that's a big factor I think we need to worry about as well too, which I think is going to push a lot of parents to want to know more about this technology and stuff to make sure they're making the accurate decisions for their child's life as well too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. But you, yeah, you oftentimes have both. So you, um, it can be wise to do, for example, to get genetic testing prenatally or preconceptionally to make sure that you, you know, if you know that there's a huge family risk, for example, Huntington's, if you know that, that your parents have Huntington's, uh, disease, and you don't want to pass it on, then you can select the embryos that, that do not have the, you know, this mutation, um, and prevent it. But for many other illnesses, it's it's a bit silly to go and. I know that there is this one company now uh, in in the US. I won't say their name that way. I'm not promoting, them, <laughs> but um, who um, who are you are making these risk calculations for embryo, but. It doesn't really make sense, you know, and there's, they have one one uh, published paper now where they have, um, I think it's a couple that have five embryos. Um, and in the end, they didn't trans- transfer either one of them. They didn't, they, you know, because for each and every embryo, you have a illness, a disease where they have above average risk of getting it, of course, because an average is just an average of, you know, we... It would be strange if, if we would find an embryo or a person that has below average chances of getting any possible disease you can imagine, mm-hmm. but so we, we shouldn't be wanting that. we should just yeah know that we have certain risks that we all have and that we better yeah, eat healthy, live healthy, um, you know have, have healthy habits, and then you know that's that's what we can do, but you can't expect to have some kind of super genetic composition that, that makes you be able to eat everything and do everything you want and still be be like a happy, healthy person that it's it's just won't work that way.
1: You just explained every diet pill commercial that tells you you can take this pill and lose up to this. I love it. How they say lose up to it goes. Yeah. That's the potential. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. 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 That's that's Yeah, feel like that as well. (laughs) We're in a world where people really think that we're probably more advanced than we actually are. Like people think that like, like I've had friends or for instance, a lot of people now that I know that are starting to get treatments like reverse aging. That's a big thing right now. People are really trying to find ways to reverse aging, whether it's a cream, whether it's this or whether it's just going in for surgery and getting something lifted or something like that. It's like, I get it. But like, there's like a lot of people out there that I think it's just that immortality aspect. People are doing anything. It's the same reason, like with kids, for instance, people look at that as like getting a, a copy of themselves. I mean, in a sense, sure, with a mix of somebody else. But you get into this point where people are just really afraid of that lasting factor of life like they love like a lot of people say they enjoy the ride but they never want it to end and it's like you know it does end though like we don't have this guaranteed like you're not gonna be that abnormality that lives forever you know but people really like that aspect of things and they really like this thing of making themselves like this idea of being in their prime what's your prime isn't your prime like where is it your financial situation is it your physical situation but they just look at looks and it's it's a weird thing about people i love it because it's like just interesting to look at how everyone examines something but the idea of never wanting to give up that last little bit of whatever they want to hold on to yeah
0: yeah and it is it is becoming more and more uh prominent this idea of the, the longevity and, and anti-aging and uh, maybe you should have Aubrey de degree in your show he's very uh, everyone keeps
1: recommending him to me
0: <laughs> yeah it would be yeah it would be interesting because uh, he's, he's very much uh yeah in favor of trying to prevent us us all from dying right um, and it's an interesting discussion i think because it's it's kind of difficult to give um an argument against not wanting to die because we all of us prefer, you know. Nobody says, "Oh, I, well, yeah." No, some, some people do want to die, but most of us don't want to die. So you would say, "Well, if you don't want to die today, why would you want to die when you're old?" But at the same time, yeah, you have older people who are really ready to die. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a. I guess if, if we could live uh, healthily for a longer time, then. You know what? What would be the argument against it? But at the same time, I always, I, I also feel a bit, I think, like the way you're feeling. Like, why, why would we want to do this? Why don't we just accept that? You know, it all ends, and and just try to do everything you want to do in the time that's been given to you, and you know, and just leave it at that. Don't, don't try to to push your your boundaries. But I, I would admit that it is difficult to give really strong arguments why we should just, you know, be okay with the time that is given to us and why. Why not, uh, yeah, why not try to live forever? Yeah, no, I, I can't, I can't tell people they can't try.
1: I think you should only know the answer that they can reverse aging or they can make you go back to the start at the end of your life. Because I feel like it gets this extra boost of wanting to do as much as you can with the time that you have. And I feel like if you just knew when you were in your 20s that they could just reverse the clock all the way back to your 20s again, you would just be the laziest person ever. I mean, you might be a hustler, but probably you're just gonna be like, I got another life. It's like having nine lives. If you told me I had nine lives to relive at 20 every single time, I would live out that 100 in the most boring way possible. But with the time that I have, I that's if I live to 100, I might not. I was banking yeah. on 26, but you know, hey, <laughs> do as much as you can in the time that you have. Don't waste a minute of it. You know, it's just that age yeah. factor. I mean, it is but a number, but that number does play a psychological toll into who you are going to be.
0: Yeah. No, it's true. That might be one of the arguments why you would not want to live forever to make sure that we get things done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, Heidi, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Seriously, it's been a it's been really informative. Um, is there a place where people can find you? Do you have any links to Twitter or anything? Uh,
0: yes, I am on Twitter. It's just Heidi Mesh. This one, because uh, there was already another Heidi Mesh. Um, and on my, uh, I guess, my Ghent University uh, profile page, you can find me if you need me.
1: I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. And thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the blind.